Hello, and welcome back to Thoughts on Foreign Policy. My name is Derek Basakio, and as always, I will be your host. I have a great program for you today, and I hope you enjoy it. First, a bit of housekeeping. I've been shuffling around the area recently and haven't had time for the podcast. I know, I've been slacking. I'm also sick with a terrible fever. Now, all excuses aside, I'd like to also say that I've switched my blog over from Blogger to Weebly. It can now be found at foreignpolicytalk.weebly.com. Check it out and feel free to comment on any of the posts. Links to this podcast will be there as well. For today's program, we're going to look specifically at the ongoing crisis in the Gaza Strip and what I will call Russia's self-fulfilling prophecy. Our quote of the week actually leads us into this episode's first subject, the Gaza Strip. So let's begin. Amid the Israeli operation to destroy tunnels used by Hamas underneath Gaza, a lieutenant colonel with the Israeli Defense Forces has stated that it looks like a soldier was taken back through the tunnel. Now this, presumably, would mean that militants have captured an IDF soldier. Why is this significant? Because Israel has a history of negotiating prisoner swaps wherein it will trade sometimes thousands of Palestinian prisoners for a single soldier. Getting any Palestinians released from this current round of fighting would be a major victory for Hamas, despite the beating it has taken by the IDF. The IDF is far superior in terms of military might, but for resistance groups, it is all about small victories against Israel. Israel's 2006 war with Hezbollah can largely be counted as a loss for Israel because, even though Israel dealt heavy damage to the Lebanese group, it did not secure any of its objectives and, crucially, Hezbollah survived. Survival is akin to winning. Now for anyone following Operation Protective Edge, the name for the Israeli military action inside the Gaza Strip, it can be quite confusing. It seems like every other hour, a ceasefire has been announced, only to be broken again. Both sides regularly accuse the other side of being responsible for breaking it, and in truth it is probably both of them breaking it. In all, a little over 60 Israelis, mostly soldiers, have been killed since the fighting began almost a month ago. The death toll for Palestinians is far worse coming close to 1,700, with the majority being civilians. Israel faces a real threat from the conflict, and let me explain why. While Hamas's rockets are dangerous and threaten the lives of Israeli civilians, most of them either land in unoccupied space or are shot down by the Iron Dome, Israel's missile defense system. Hamas is woefully under-equipped to try any large operation into Israeli territory, so the fighting is centered inside the Gaza Strip. Why am I saying, then, that Israel faces a threat? Because of the very large prospect of failure. Operation Protective Edge has turned into, in the eyes of some Israeli politicians, a campaign to defeat Hamas entirely. Now that's virtually impossible. Every Hamas militant killed is likely to produce more down the line so long as the blockade of the Gaza Strip, in place since 2007 when Hamas took over Gaza, remains. So when Israel sets about trying to defeat Hamas, it puts itself into a bad position when it fails to do so. I said before that for Hezbollah, survival is akin to winning. It is the exact same for Hamas. That victory comes with a high price, but it can help Hamas rebuild the credibility it lost over the years as a poor administrator of the Gaza Strip. The prospect that Israel faces should it fail to destroy Hamas is a more resilient militia in the Gaza Strip with a propaganda boost and increasing levels of criticism from abroad by the rest of the world. Even the United States has spoken out against Israel's excessive use of force in its operation. What also suffers as a result of the fighting is the peace process. The most recent talks, despite the best efforts of United States Secretary of State John Kerry, broke down in April when Israel walked out following a unity agreement between Hamas and Fatah, the political party governing the West Bank. The negotiations accomplished absolutely nothing, and this is a big problem for the head of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. With the exception of the 2012 UN vote that saw Palestine upgraded to a non-member observer state in the General Assembly, Mr. Abbas has won scarce little for the Palestinian people. 
Instead, he has tried to pursue failing peace talks while Israel continues to build settlements in the West Bank. Couple that inability with Hamas's showcase of resistance in the Gaza Strip, and Mr. Abbas is even more sidelined than before. This will be particularly the case should Hamas manage to secure the release of Palestinians or, less likely but still a goal, end the blockade of Gaza. The longer the fighting goes on, the worse it is for those on both sides of the dispute who advocate dialogue in the face of violence, even though it is precisely dialogue that is needed for a reasonable solution to be found that provides for both Palestinians and Israelis' states as well as security. What is needed right now is a ceasefire, but who is able to achieve that is a mystery. I'd like to shift gears and head to Ukraine, where tensions have been heating up even as the Gaza Strip is bombed. Over two weeks ago, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 was shot down over Ukraine near the volatile eastern city of Donetsk, killing all 298 people on board. Ukraine has blamed the pro-Russian separatists in the east for doing it, while those rebels and Russia have blamed Ukraine's military for the attack. Though all parties ostensibly are open to allowing investigators to the scene, there is widespread accusation that evidence has been tampered with. Most likely the smoking gun in this whole equation, the weapon system responsible for taking the plane down, has been disposed of by this point. The United States and its allies have blamed Russia for the incident, citing Russian support of the rebels in Ukraine. Russia, for its part, has denied any wrongdoing. Regardless of the culprit of the attack, be it rebels, Ukrainians, Russians, aliens, meteors, predator, you name it, the incident is having very negative repercussions for Russia. In addition to sanctions already in place on Russia for its role in the fighting and its annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in March, more sanctions are being placed on Russia after the downing of MH17. Japan, which has tried to mend ties with Russia over the past few years, has announced sanctions as well. In light of all the international outrage over Russia's support of the rebels in Ukraine, it's becoming apparent that Russia has created a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts with regards to its foreign relations. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of speculation that the new European Union would be able to develop better ties with Russia. The United States has had a conception for some time that it can create warm relations with Russia, even up to the start of current President Barack Obama's first term with his restart in attitudes. Russia, on the other hand, has a different approach. To be sure, there are those inside the country that feel being more amenable to the West would be beneficial, particularly in the realm of economic deals. But they have been pushed aside in favor of those skeptical of the West's, particularly the European Union's, intentions. It isn't exactly hard to see where they get that fear. The EU and NATO have spread right to Russia's borders, and proposed American missile shields in Europe would threaten Russia's nuclear deterrence, even though they are intended to prevent Iran from ever launching a nuke at Europe. So even as Western Europe moves closer to Russia, Russia has strongly resisted. In 2008, it pummeled Georgia to the south in a short war and has menaced Ukraine for some time now with economic warfare and now support of rebel movements. It has just recently slapped import duties on tiny Moldova, and countries from Ukraine to the Baltic have complained of Russian fighter planes flying close to the border. Perhaps Russia's bellicose actions were inevitable. It's hard to argue for an idle approach while traditional rivals expand close to your borders, after all. But its strategy has sped up its isolation until all of Russia's neighbors start to turn their backs. Kazakhstan, for example, is firmly within Russia's new trade union, but its own ethnic Russians scare it for the prospect of another Crimea-like annexation. After the Crimean incident, China and Russia inked a gas deal, but even China has been absent in support of Russia's Ukraine endeavors, mainly due to the fact that Russia has abandoned its and China's traditional argument of the sanctity of sovereignty. Russia feared of a world where it was surrounded by enemies, and it is fast creating that world into reality whether it realizes it or not. 
The unpredictable actions by Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, are driving Russian neighbors, particularly those in Eastern Europe that are former Soviet states, right into the arms of the EU. It's hard to see how Russia could really rectify that position now. It can get the sanctions removed easily enough, but will not be able to maintain the type of sphere of influence it wants. Its economy is heavily structured around natural gas that will eventually taper off, and its military is in decline. Russia isn't the juggernaut it was under the Soviet Union. At this point, a lot of international damage has been done. Its neighbors are frightened and looking west. It's the Russian nightmare that it built for itself. Time will tell how Russia reacts and if it can recover some sense of international credibility. The way for it to do that would be going back to a familiar line, being a staunch opponent of Western direct involvement. Russia abandoned the sovereignty card with Crimea, but it can get it back. Doing so, however, may require sacrificing the rebels in Ukraine. It's a tough call for Mr. Putin, who has demonstrated that despite the shootdown of MH17, he's prepared to continue support of the rebels. Both Ukraine and the Gaza Strip are lightning rods for their regions right now. Despite the points I've raised, the conflicts may well continue for the duration of the summer and for an unspecified amount of time after. In both, ceasefires have been attempted and flagrantly broken because no one feels they benefit from them. The trick is to convince all parties in these separate fights that a secession of hostilities is in their best interests. But in Ukraine, as in Gaza, that's a hard sell. In the week ahead, I think a key to watch for is in Syria, where the Islamic State has reportedly run into trouble in eastern provinces as it fights fellow rebel groups. For countries like the United States that would like to see the Islamic State defeated and thus not pose a terror threat, dislodging the group from its Syrian havens is crucial. Keep an eye on the fighting in eastern Syria, for there are serious implications should the Islamic State be put on the defensive. This brings us to the end of the program. As developments in these subjects we've discussed happen, I'll be sure to provide updates on them either here or on my blog, which is again located at foreignpolicytalk.weebly.com. Check it out and be sure to provide feedback. I always like hearing back from my listeners and viewers on what I'm talking about. I hope you've enjoyed the show today, and thank you for listening.